Hey, everybody, welcome back to Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Our guest today is Sabrina Little, who is an ultra runner who has held the American record in the 200K and the 24-hour American record. In case you're wondering, she ran 152.03 miles in 24 hours. And Sabrina is also a very good writer and a tenure-track philosophy professor. So in this conversation, we talk about all of the above and why Sabrina puts a value on all of these different disciplines. And we also talk about toothpaste and Harry Potter, because of course... And so let's go ahead and get to my conversation with Sabrina Little. Here we go. Well, Sabrina, how are you today? And where are you today? I'm great. Uh, I am in my office at Moorhead State University. And it is an office that is completely empty. I've only been in here, I think, three times because there are no office hours uh, during pandemics. So it's it's empty. There are no books behind me. I'm a little self-conscious. Yeah, I admittedly, I judged you. Like the, <laughs> we got on this call and I immediately saw behind you a bookcase with zero books on it. <laughs> and I thought that's maybe that's maybe not the best sign when I, you know, hop on a call, especially when I'm talking with a philosophy professor. Um, So maybe it's a red flag. It's a bit of a red flag, unless you're one of those philosophy types. That's like, no, I've actually already, you know, I've used (laughs) the history of philosophy as a stepladder. I have now arrived at the kind of ultimate truth, right? This is kind of Wittgensteinian, I suppose. So it's time to just be done with the you know, the, the step ladder itself, it's time to kick the ladder away. Yeah. The post book era of my career. Right. Right. Where you're just like, you know, now I've, I've learned everything I can from others. It's time now to just give to the people my own thoughts on the, you know, correct state of things. She's like, maybe, maybe. <laughs> wow. We really got into that fast. Um, I also don't actually think that's a good reading of Wittgenstein, but that we're not going to go into that, that today. Um, Boy, we're getting to talk to a runner and a real live philosophy professor. It's like Christmas Day for me here. So, um, but before we get started, I've been meaning to ask you about this. On your profile on Instagram, it says that you are a toothpaste connoisseur, and I've never met one of those. <laughs> so, can you explain yourself? Yeah. I love toothpaste. I love, uh, dentistry in general. Um, so it's just kind of a joke. I mean, I love everything about going to the dentist. It's kind of the perfect social situation for an introvert because they ask you questions, but you can't answer because they have their hands in your mouth and they give you really highly specific compliments like, Oh, the angle of your incisors is like really nice or something. And so I just have always loved the dentist. Um, but I also really like brushing my teeth. Um, you know, feeling really clean. So I'm a Colgate total tartar control kind of girl. Um, but I'm open to trying different things. That was all just amazing. Everything you just said, I've like, I've never met anybody who's like, I like going to the dentist. So there was a first. 
I'm very intrigued. I'm now, I've now feel self-conscious. I think I have not spent that much time thinking about my toothpaste choices. Have you really sampled, like, have you tried the gamut that's out there and have come back to, what was it, Colgate? Colgate Total Tartar Control. Uh Yeah, I I have through the years. You know, I went through an Aquafesh phase and I've gone to Crest, uh, but I definitely always come back to the Colgate. And they have like, you can get multi-packets. So it's like three or four tubes of toothpaste in a shop. Wow. These are good things. Good things to know. There's one of the things I dislike is there are so many types of toothpaste, like Colgate. How many types or varieties of toothpaste do you think Colgate makes? Like, honestly. <laughs> no idea. <laughs> I mean, it seems like it's like 50. Yeah. I don't, how would any of us have enough information to be like, ah, yes, I, uh, the one that works best for me is that 36th varietal of the 50 that they, like, this is, I don't really get it. Yeah, it's a really good point. I think there probably are too many varieties. Okay. It's either the best or it's not. So it's wait, it's either the best or it's not, right? So we should have one. <laughs> yeah. Maybe two. Yeah. Okay. Running and philosophy. Which of those two things was your first interest? Uh yeah, that's a good question. Um I've always run in some capacity. Uh I played a lot of sports growing up, but running was the one thing in common in all of them that I just loved and and thrived at. And I remember just getting a lot of attention for running as a child. So it's pretty foundational to who I am. But I also think philosophy in general is foundational to who we are, just asking questions from a young age. Um, I've always loved school. I loved reading. Um, I loved asking questions, um, real nerd stuff. And so I, I don't know, I think that's pretty central to who I am too. So the fact that I've grown up to love both of them together, I just feel like it's a rich life where I can pursue intellectual things at a high level and pursue running at a high level. Okay, but you weren't like an eight-year-old kid reading like Aristotle's ethics at recess. No. So in terms of which came first, running, the passion or interest in running came before philosophy? Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know what philosophy was as a discipline until college, um, which I think is true for a lot of people. I definitely read philosophy in high school, but I didn't know it under that name. Okay, gotcha. There's a point for the normal, like we give you plus one for normalcy on that, maybe (laughs) minus one for your feelings about loving going to the dentist. So this is good. We're, we're, you know, we're sizing this up and keeping score. Yeah, I think some listeners might know I kind of have my own background in philosophy and I definitely did not know what philosophy was as like in high school. I had a smart friend on my football team was like, maybe you should take a philosophy class. And I was literally was like, what's philosophy? So that's kind of how it, yeah, my own story. So I'm, I'm glad for maybe multiple reasons that you weren't like an eight year old reading no. Aristotelian <laughs> ethics. That makes me feel better. Where did you grow up? So I grew up in the northwest corner of New Jersey. It's called Sussex. Um, Vernon is the town. And it's right in the Appalachian Mountains. So I grew up hiking the trails. We would run a little bit of them during recess. So it was just really the greatest way to grow up, uh, having access to outdoor spaces and not really that much else to do in that area, to be honest. So I spent a lot of time outside. 
Okay. And forgive me, I don't, I'm not familiar with the area. So this is a pretty rural area. Yeah, it's, it's very rural. Very. It's, yeah, Appalachia um, kind of area. And I mean, a lot of people commute to New York City. Um, like, so a lot of my friends' parents worked in the city. So we were close enough to the city that we could, you know, go to museums and things, but still far enough away that we, I mean, there wasn't traffic um, and we were just surrounded by beauty, nature. Wow. Okay. You're painting a nice picture here. And your parents, I have a, a suspicion that maybe your parents, were they educators of some form? <laughs> <Yeah>. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So my dad was a math and history teacher and my mom was an art teacher uh, and they met teaching in the same school. Okay. And then... Was there kind of the nudge from them to be like, you should really, you know, develop a passion for math or art? Or did they let you, was it a little more of a free range type of parenting situation? Yeah, it's so funny. I don't think that they really pushed us in any direction. Um, they definitely wanted us to take our education seriously. And my siblings and I did. We loved being in school anyway. Um, my dad would play math tests with us. He would give us like older level math tests and we would play them in the car. And my mom always had us working in sketchbooks, but it wasn't like take up this career or something like that. Um, it was just kind of to keep us active and engaged. Um, but yeah, I was more interested in, I don't know, I guess I really liked writing from a young age. And I also really liked the natural sciences and thought I might go into medicine or something like that. But yeah, I mean, I loved school straight through. From the running side of things, um, what did that look like for you in, say, middle school or high school? I take it there was some competitive running happening along in these years. Yes, uh, for sure. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so early on, okay, so from a really young age, I think I started playing soccer when I was four and started a traveling soccer team when I was seven. And from there, just kind of got into a lot of different sports. So just traveling basketball team, and I did competitive softball and field hockey. And it was the same coach for all of the sports. And because it was a small town, there wasn't a lot to do. So we would just like all the same group of girls go from field to field. Um, and the one thing that I was good at in all of that was, I guess, the running. Um, so I really looked forward to entering middle school because I knew that the cross country and track program started then. So I started to compete more and more. I did it through high school. Um, I loved it. I had a great experience. And then from there, I went to run at college. And where was that? Uh, I ran at the College of William & Mary. Uh, I actually ended up running for about a year and a half and switched over to trail and started dabbling in ultra stuff. And so at that point, I think we know the answer here, but just to be clear, so kind of gave up collegiate running and competition. And I mean, it seems like this is a bit more of a common story these days or in the last maybe, what, five to 10 years um, where it's like I'd rather be on a trail than a track. Yeah. It was more that, I don't know, the so the training at William & Mary was very different from what I did in high school. In high school, I did a lot of miles. A lot of it was soft surfaces on the Appalachian Trail. Got it. And when I got to college, it was higher intensity. My mileage dropped 
pretty low and I kept getting injured. And so I would pull back, kind of train myself for a little bit, get healthy and then return to the team and get injured again. (laughs) So I just started to realize that it might not be a good fit training wise. So I did just an ultra intending to return and loved it and didn't, didn't come back. What was the ultra and when was the ultra? Yeah. So the ultra was, well, it's an interesting story. My mom had been in remission from cancer. um, And so I like grand gestures. So I ran 100 miles as a fundraiser for the National Ovarian Cancer Coalition. And it was just a run that I put together um, and strung together. I made a map in my town and some of the neighboring towns. So I ran 100 miles and fundraise and it was great. But at the time I didn't know it was a sport. I only found out it was a sport because it was in the newspaper and someone contacted my dad and said, do you know this is one of the top 10 times in the country for the hundred this year? Um, And so I was like, wow, other people do this. (laughs) So I sought them out and I started to compete um, back around William & Mary. There's actually a really great ultra scene. So I started to do you know, I did a hundred mile there. I did a 50 mile and so forth. And I've been competing ever since. So many questions here. Okay. So what year was this and how old were you when you did your first hundred? Yeah. So this was right after freshman year of college. So how old are people then? 19 ish. Uh, and then I, I mean, I planned to go right back onto the team. Um, I did. I showed up on the first day of practice uh, and I started to fall into the same kind of injury cycle. So I knew that my body was hardy because it could handle a lot of mileage and I could run pretty quick um, on the training and I'd had some good results in high school. But whatever was happening at William & Mary on that team, it just wasn't a good fit for my body. So I started to figure that out and then I became more comfortable with just going a different way and trying a different kind of racing. Okay. Um, I've talked to a lot of runners and it's often come up sort of their first ultra. And in many cases, that's a very rocky first start. And you haven't said anything about how you trained for this or like what was the longest you had ever run prior to running your hundred. So help me out here. Yeah. So I didn't, I wouldn't say that I trained specifically. I remember my longest run in the buildup was 17 miles. Um, I did not know how to pace myself. So the first like hour I went off at like 645, 650 pace or something and was like hating myself (laughs) for hours of that event. And I also didn't know what you were supposed to eat. So, I mean, I ate fruit snacks and my family would bring me culottas and (laughs) it was just a real disaster. But I mean, yeah, you get through it. I mean, Uh, you, you get through it. I mean, don't speak for the rest of us, please. Uh, Wow. I, I mean, even now that I know how to train, In my best races, there are moments where you're in a pit of despair and things are not going well. And you just have to accept that that's part of the process of running 100 miles. So I had that um, and I've had it every time since. I still want to know timelines here. So this is your freshman year at William & Mary. And what year is that? Uh, So 2010. 2010. 2010. Yeah. Wow. Okay. 
Um, that's remarkable. And so you find out two things. One, that you had a top 10 time. And two, that this was, in fact, a sport. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, went back to the team, you've said, and then at that point sort of just realized pretty quickly or after another injury or something, like, I think I might, this whole trail, uh, long running on trails just might be what I'm better cut out for. Yeah, it was a really interesting, I don't know, discussion because it remained that. It remained a discussion. I just kept saying to the coach, like, well, I got to go get myself healthy again. And then I would fall into my training patterns and really find myself stronger again. And then, I mean, I just kept, every time I returned, the time away would get longer and longer. And then I just realized I'm not going to try to keep making this happen. I mean, I have some regret about it now because I think you can't get back those four years. Like it's a really special thing to be part of just a collegiate team and to get to use your speed when you're young and sharp. So I do kind of have regrets around that. Like, honestly, perseverance is really important to me. So I don't like having to tell a story where I stopped something, <laughs> like I stopped being on the team. Uh, but ultimately, it was a better match for my proclivities, my interests, the way I liked training and spending my time. So I'm really grateful for having started that journey into ultras. And, you know, to alleviate some of your concerns and worries about maybe all of our listeners thinking you're just some quitter, <laughs> um, 2013 is a very interesting year for you. You yes. set a couple of significant records here. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So in 2013, I competed in the world championships for the 24-hour run. Um, and I had actually set the American record a year prior to that huh. in 2012 at the national championships, but it had fallen again that fall. And so I just pushed it again higher. Um, but yeah, I ran, I guess, 152 miles and change um, and placed sil silver medalists in the world. And it was really exciting. It was, to be honest, like kind of surprising. When I arrived at the event, I felt like such a young kid among a lot of athletes who were older and more experienced and the coach pulled me aside and said, I think you can be a medalist here today. And I was like, oh, I don't know about that. And as the day progressed, I just started to see it and believe it more and push harder. And I ended up, yeah, um, in second place and Team USA placed gold. So it was just a really special memory um, that I have with those women and I'm really grateful for. And then there was the 200K American record. Yeah, that was set on the way to 152. Yeah, so a double whammy. Double whammy. It's a pretty good double whammy. <laughs> so that's, and that's 2013? Yes. So where are you with respect to philosophy at that point? Are you a pretty, are you already like invested deep in, into this subject or at that point in life, given that we've just heard the story about your first ultra was 2010, had you kind of put the blinkers on and really just focused about, let me see how good I can get at this whole running thing and like what I can do and what I'm capable of. If you tell yes. me you did both at the same time, I'm going to be 
I'm going to feel bad about myself, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, So running has never been positioned to be the number one thing in my life. It's kind of the hobby that I have. So in 2013, I had, okay, so I graduated from William & Mary in philosophy and psychology. Then I went to Yale and got my master's in philosophy of religion. And I wanted to do a master's because I wasn't sure if I wanted to go to graduate school in psychology or philosophy. I even thought, I mean, I had been pre-med, so I even thought maybe medical school is still on the table. And I just needed a little time to distill what my interests were. So in 2013, I was actually teaching in a classical school after my master's and trying to just figure out where my interests were so I could know where to go to graduate school part two. So I was teaching full-time, I was newly married, and I was running far. <laughs> what does far mean? Uh, I ran a lot of mileage. And honestly, I don't know how much it was because I didn't have a watch. I didn't really care. I just kind of, I, I just ran by feel and, and figured out how much my body could take each day. And as I approached an event, maybe I'd add longer runs, but I have no idea how much I was running, but it was a lot. <laughs> okay. I believe you. I totally yeah. believe you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Okay. Just a quick tangent. So you were at Yale philosophy of religion. Yep. We had talked a little bit off air we've had some overlap in terms of some people that we had worked with in our days. Were you working with Nick Waltersdorf at Yale? Um, He's my intellectual grandfather. I was working with John Hare. Um, So Waltersdorf wasn't there anymore. I've heard him speak and things, but yeah, he wasn't there. Okay. Just curious. This is just me trying to, you know, I don't know. I think, I don't know if I'm trying to show, like, I I know some of these people. It's, it's fine. I I swear. That's awesome. Okay, so you're married, you're running a lot, you're trying to figure out where you ought to go to grad school, and how do you get to that decision? Yeah, so I had a three-year block of time to figure it out, Um, and that's because my husband is a professor as well. He has his PhD in political science, and I knew that he had three years of coursework before he started his dissertation, that means you're locked in place for three years. So during that time, I loved my job teaching and I would be, you know, reading texts that I wanted to at lunch, just, and I liked Plato and Aristotle. And soon students would gather around and suddenly we had a philosophy club and we would read together at lunches and we would go for hikes and talk about great ideas. And just seeing their joy in that kind of context, I just realized that that's what I wanted to do with my life. I wanted to build my life around really important conversations and expose students to to big questions and great books. Um, so it was those students who turned me and I started to apply to programs and I ended up at Baylor. Okay, fun question to ask. Do you get asked by people like, so what is philosophy? Uh One, do they ask you that? And then two, I am very curious to hear, you have to have kind of your succinct answer to this, I presume. So I'd love to hear your definition or what you tell people if they're like, well, what is philosophy? Yeah. Oh my goodness. It's so funny because my sister 
just tells people that I'm a psychologist. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. And, just let's just, yeah. And people and nod that, and go on with yeah. the normal conversation. Okay. And at Thanksgiving, someone asked me that and another person jumped in and said, oh, philosophy, that's uh, where you negotiate peace at wartime. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> it's kind of. Okay, so I just uh, pretty much when, when people ask me what philosophy is, I say it's a level of wisdom. And then I tell them about the subdisciplines because usually they've heard of things like ethics and they've heard of logic or um kind of knowledge questions. So I usually introduce the kinds of questions that we pursue in the classroom. So that's how I, I go about answering it. I think my go-tos have tended to be, I'll say something like, well, it's a discipline where we think about like what's worth valuing and what isn't. Or sometimes I'll say like, well, it's the work of self-examination. And yeah. those things are, you know, obviously interlinked, but I think that's where Very, we, we start. Yeah. Yeah. Very Socratic answer. Yeah. Right. Okay. So why Baylor? Why like, yeah. and we haven't really talked about your particular interests in philosophy or, you know, where in this sort of broad discipline where there's things like ethics and epistemology and all the rest, like what, what most attracted you? And you already said, well, like I wanted to. Uh, have the chance to kind of expose people to these books and big ideas and the rest. But were you already kind of homed in on an area that you were really wanted to work on or focus on? Yeah, I knew I liked history of philosophy and I knew I liked the ancients in particular. I also knew that I really liked ethics, um, virtue, character uh, in the classical school that I taught at for three years. I did a lot of work on the character education curriculum. Like, how do you teach people to love good things and, uh, you know, have well-ordered emotions and to be honest or have integrity and so forth? And those are questions that were really important to me. So I wanted to go somewhere that I could study those. I also had a mentor say that you should surround yourself by people you don't just want to learn from, but you also want to be like. And there's a professor at Baylor, his name's Steve Evans, um, and he's definitely someone that I would want to be like. He's fair-minded and really kind to students and loves his family and uh, does, you know, some work in public philosophy. Like, he's not just narrowed in in the academy. Um, he thinks it's important to also, you know, share ideas beyond. And that was the kind of person that I wanted to be like. So once I got accepted to Baylor, I accepted. Mm -hmm. Had you had interactions with Evans prior to Baylor? I did. Yeah. Uh, just just a couple. I attended a couple of his public lectures at Baylor and sent him a follow-up email asking about books to read. And he answered that. So yeah, I'd had a couple of exchanges okay. with him prior. Yeah. So you're off to Baylor. And what's your running life look like around this time? Are you, yeah. you know, is it sort of taking a, you've already said like that never, you know, I don't know, accolades and running was never kind of your primary driver, but how casual or competitive or I don't know, earnest were you about running at a high level through all this other stuff you've been telling us about. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Well, I would tell you I was super casual, but my husband would tell you I was not super casual. I think I believe your husband. 
Um, it's hard to be, it's hard to do something half way, I would say. And when I'm training, I'm, I'm focused during that time. I really like to push myself. So even if I'm not thinking about races, I'm in training, I'm going to put in hard work because I like to put in hard work and I like the kind of edification and structure that it offers to your day. So I was running consistently. Um, I would compete in maybe five or six ultras a year. Um, and I didn't talk about it academically. I always, it kind of made me uncomfortable that like my first year of graduate school, one of the professors tried to get me to do philosophy of sport. And I was like, that's philosophy for jocks. And I don't do questions pertaining to sports. Like I didn't want to be just a pretty good philosophy philosopher for an athlete. I didn't right. want to be just the sports person. So I was really guarded about running and I didn't talk about it in, in that context. Um, over the years, you know, since then, I've gotten some advice that you should do philosophy that's close to home, like ask questions that are important to you and questions pertaining to sports are really important to me. So I feel like I can do them well. So I'm more comfortable with it now. Um, but yeah, I, I tried to keep my two spheres isolated. Yeah, it's funny. I've sort of seen that move by certain people in philosophy where they're like, oh, you're into these other things. Well, then you should just, you know, sort of teach or give a talk on philosophy of that. And I, I think I, I get where you're coming from, where it's like, well, no, I really like running and I really like this other thing. And it doesn't mean that I need to only like think about or help people think about that activity I love through like the lens of philosophy. I've been on some like panel sessions where the questions sort of kept, it was like philosophy of skiing and the outdoors. And I'm like, well, okay, we can do that. <laughs> and you are currently writing a monthly column for I Run Far, and that's called The Examined Run. Is that right? Yeah. I'm really grateful for the opportunity that I Run Far has given me to just have a platform to write about those things that are really important to me. Because I think I don't know, for a while, I would just think about them by myself. I'd be thinking about character. I'd be thinking about the virtues, vices as pertain to my running because it was what I was thinking about academically and it had a direct bearing on how I understood myself as an athlete. And so when they offered me the opportunity, I just kind of walked through that door and said yes. And it's been kind of a learning process, um, trying to figure out where my voice is there, uh, because it's different than academic writing. Academic writing is kind of guarded and always on the defense and very precise. And that's not the kind of writing that is accessible outside the academy. So I've learned to try to show things better and then to introduce concepts that I think will be helpful to other people too. But it's been really fun for me, and I just love it. I think it's really important that we have conversations outside the academy because we have access to this entire tradition of inquiry where people have asked really good questions about what it means to be human. And if I'm going out on a run every day thinking about what it means to be human, like I imagine other people are doing the same. Um, so, yeah, it's been a cool opportunity to write that. 
if someone hasn't read the columns, these columns yet, what would be in store for them, would you say? Is there kind of an overarching umbrella or you're like, I don't know, it just varies from month to month, you know? Yeah, so it, def- it definitely varies. Um, but I would say that the overriding theme is sports is not an unqualified good in the way that it forms us. And there are ways in which vices are reinforced, like these bad qualities that make us not good friends, not good citizens, not good parents or siblings or so forth. Uh, But then there are also good qualities that are reinforced. And it's interesting because when you talk about sports with parents, typically they'll say, oh, I put little Johnny in little league so that he can develop discipline and he can become, I don't know, have more integrity and govern his emotions or whatever. And that's true. But it's also true that sometimes qualities like envy are reinforced or a kind of intemperance. Like if you're in tackle football, there's impulsivity is reinforced. And so I just want to have like genuine conversations about the way in which we're being shaped on a regular basis. Um, And so, yeah, that overriding theme is how are we formed through sports or putting it another way, what role does running play in the flourishing life? Nicely said. Yeah. Give us your thoughts on that. What role does running play in a flourishing life? I don't say that in a flippant way, actually, but I think this will take us into um, an interesting direction of the conversation. So you've just said, you've already said there can be real pros and some real cons, right? To this notion maybe that, yeah, people should participate in athletics or whatever because it is character building or the like. But so I don't know, um, having said that there are pros and cons, where do you, let's say just personally, kind of see that position or maybe it's almost like what mood are you in currently right if the, if this is a if this is a bit of a moving target or the the needle varies a bit right yeah uh it's a really good question so first i want to say that in the classical tradition so stemming way back to like the ancient greeks they used athletics as a kind of preparation for learning it was a kind of formation of the emotion. So it would make you disciplined enough to be teachable. And a big part of what athletics has done for me in my life has been that, the kind of regulation of emotions. Also, like it's taught me qualities. It's helped me practice patience and uh, perseverance and things that, you know, you can learn the word patience, you can learn the word perseverance, but in the classical tradition, these are qualities that are acquired by doing. Like uh, Aristotle says, you know, we become builders by building and liar players by playing the liar. So too, we become just by doing just acts, patient by doing patient acts. And so having a kind of practice in your life, which athletics is, you show up every day trying to improve, having that practice in your life where you're provided the opportunity to work on these internal qualities, these internal excellences has been invaluable in my life. Um, And it has shaped me in so many ways. I mean, there are virtues, but also like qualities like confidence. I told you I was a real nerd, but (laughs) I could, I could run. Right. Um, And so those are all the good things that sports can bring. And I, am definitely going to put my child in athletics. 
for that reason. However, there are other qualities reinforced in the context of sport that are not so good. And one is, you know, some of them are cultural. Like, for example, these days, there's a kind of rhetoric in sport around no pain, no gain. Or this idea that suffering for its own sake is like what we should be doing. And if you're not just terrible to your body, then you're weak. Like that kind of thing doesn't form you in good ways. It doesn't form you in good ways to be impulsive or to post everything on social media such that it becomes about a performance or it becomes about the image of the thing rather than the thing itself. Like that doesn't make us substantial people or good members of a community. And so I think it's just really important to be aware of the ways in which, you know, we enter sport to be formed and we are but not always in good ways. So I just think we need to be talking about those things. There's not the like, it's as is the case, I think in much of life and much of learning, it's not maybe like riding a bicycle where once you've learned it, you kind of learn it, you know how to do it. You can go ride to the grocery store. These are things that are just kind of again, moving targets and we can skew or start to err or be drawn toward one direction. And sometimes it is that necessity of perpetual re-examination, re-evaluation to kind of maybe bring us back to a, a solid center. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, solid center is a good language. I mean, Aristotle talks about virtue being a kind of mean. So it's like having the right uh, intensity of the emotion in the right ways. So for example, if you're looking at something like perseverance, well, perseverance is a virtue for sure. But what if you stick to something even when it's not for your good anymore? Or it, then that's a kind of intransigence. That's an excess. That's a vice. Um, whereas on the other side, the deficiency would be something like inconstancy or lack of commitment or something like that. And so, yeah, it's trying to find the virtue mean um, relative to the emotion. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, we might be biased here, you know, the two of us talking, but I think that's one of the things that I am particularly grateful about my time and education in philosophy is that sense of maybe learning that one, we should do it, maybe learning a bit of how to do it, but that ongoing reevaluation and reexamination of the choices that we're making, um, you know, and man, it's hard. And by no means am I trying to say that, oh yeah, I'm in that solid center all of the time. I'm definitely not, right? But I know one of the things I wanted to talk with you about for maybe there's somebody on a run right now listening to this and it's like, why are these two going on about philosophy? <laughs> like who cares? But I do actually think those have been two really, well, I think of them as gifts, but maybe they're not so much gifts as it is a learned discipline, a learned practice that I frequently just think I'm really glad for the years I've spent and for the time I've personally had trying to think through the these things, right? There's a lot of stuff, many plates spinning for us, many different sets of concerns. It's easy to kind of get caught up and or lost and to be able to maybe um, have some practice of like, all right, time to like try to bring this back in and think through like, what am I doing and why? Yeah, it's definitely humanizing to ask questions. Um, it's interesting, like my students tell me that they don't wonder about things anymore. Wait, they what? just go 
They don't oh. wonder. They just Google things. <laughs> huh. But like the act of wondering, like just sitting with an idea and chewing on it and not, not really knowing uh, or figuring out what the better question is, that is part of what it means to be human. Yeah. There's a, my favorite author is Walker Percy. And in one of his books, he has this line. He says, we live in a deranged age, more deranged than usual, because despite great scientific and technological advancements, man has not the faintest idea of who he is or what he's doing here. And that's my case for the humanities, because it seems like we are a very STEM focused, like science, technology, engineering, math, focused society and those are so important and make us efficient and productive and also we need to have conversations about what it means to be human so we know our place in all of it and we know what lines not to cross so we know what human nature is and uh yeah our place in the world that quote of walker percy that's from what uh it's from oh my gosh it's a collection of essays it's a collection of essays yeah, it's a collection of essays. All right. Walker Percy, good good author, good thinker He's to have on your radar, folks. We so good. We talk a lot about books, and I'm constantly asking guests like what they're reading or recommendations, and Walker Percy has not ever come up. Um, oh, in, my goodness. Yeah, so good, good, to, good to give a little shout out to Mr. Percy. Yeah, Love in the Ruins. Start with Love in the Ruins. Yeah? Okay. Yeah. You mentioned um, that you're kind of making a defense for the humanities. And um, it's really interesting. I I recently was back on the campus of Northwestern University and just walking around that place um, and I had a friend wanted me to uh, check out their pretty new and unbelievable athletic facility. I mean, it's a, it's ridiculous. It's it's a, by which I mean completely and utterly amazing and impressive. And, you know, just walking around again on a campus and, you know, that's an expensive school. And I was saying to my friend, like, man, I actually sort of understand why it is life is kind of harder and harder for the humanities. You know, if if you're a kid who's going to pay his or her way through school or your parents are, you know, you're in a fortunate enough position and they're kind enough, they're going to pay for your education. It's like, cool. So uh, we're going to go drop probably by the time we're all said and done, maybe 80 grand for a year at this university. You know, I understand the impulse of parents who are like, you're going to go learn how to become a doctor and, you know, like pay for all of this stuff, right? Or the, the person paying for school themselves. And yet, so I get that. Whereas like philosophy or literature or something, what? That's just kind of fuzzy and, you know, what does that really do? And yet we're also in this age, and I'm absolutely sure every single person listening to this will nod along, where we're wondering about the effects of things like social media. We're wondering about the power of a lot of tech companies and this increasing reach that a lot of them have into our privacy and the rest. And these things bring us very, very practically into questions of, again, what's worth valuing and what isn't. And I sometimes think that there's maybe one founder in particular, um, 
company maybe you've heard of called Facebook, where I just often think like that dude should have spent some time in a humanities department. And I think it would have helped the cause, right? Um, Just a lot of the statements that come out of his mouth in terms of like, well, this is what we can do. And this is why we don't need to worry about that. It's like, there doesn't seem to have been much time spent thinking about really core principles and concerns about what it does mean to be human, let alone what does it mean to flourish? Yeah, and I completely agree. And I don't know, like, I don't know whose task it is anymore to have the conversations about what it means to be human. Uh, I mean, because the humanities departments are collapsing, you know, you have to, <laughs> like, the all of the funding is going to science and math and so forth. Um, and I just think that for companies like Facebook, they, yeah, they don't have a conception of what it means to be human or what a human's good is. I also don't think that they're incentivized to ask those questions. Like they're incentivized by the bottom line anyway. So, and if we let them (laughs) figure it out for us, they're not necessarily going to act for our good. So I I don't know. I, it's kind of like a, um, I, I'm obviously speaking like I'm a little defeated because every day I'm reading about more philosophy departments collapsing across the United States as also we're in this dystopian world where the Facebook meta, whatever we're talking about is creating virtual worlds and, and saying that they're as good or better than uh, physical communities. So it's just kind of a, a really odd time to be alive. But I also think like even within the context, I mean, there are those big questions about those kinds of technologies like social media and so forth and the collapsing of the physical uh, public square over just social spaces online. But I also think this touches down in so many different areas of our lives. Like an example is everyone's having conversations about the shoe technologies, like the advancing shoe technologies, and no one is addressing it from the context of, well, what is sports for? Like, why does it matter if we're artificially enhanced? Like, why don't we just all wear rollerblades? And we need like philosophers to just help ask questions or, you know, place it in the context of things that people before this time period have asked because oftentimes we can't even see the biases that are present here and so if you look back at great texts like Plato and Aristotle and so forth then you can figure out the biases in your own time period but it doesn't seem that we're doing that much anymore. How many years have you been teaching for like interacting with students in a classroom? So I taught in a classical school for three years and I've been I taught my first class on my own in 2018, um, and I graduated in 2020. So since 2020, I've been teaching more or less full-time in the university. Yep. So this might be a more interesting question to ask you two, three, or four years from now, but I'll still ask it. And I guess I'm curious, the students coming into your philosophy courses, is there a kind of bit of a generalization that you could offer about what kind of students are coming in 
to be like hot that are showing up for a philosophy class, right? Are they, are they coming in because they have a sense of what maybe we've just talked about? Like tech is kind of increasingly taking over everything. There is more and more talk about virtual worlds. Are they coming into the classroom because they're like, this seems off and maybe we ought to try to get clear on whether this these are good developments or bad developments or what the hell is going on. Uh, do you have any kind of read or is it like, nope, it's real different than that. And here's why they're actually showing up in, you know, to philosophy courses or why they're interested in this discipline. Yeah, I would say, so I have two kinds of students, my upper level philosophy students, I guess it's a little bit self-selecting, but they are there. They're invested in the questions. They are really curious to engage the big ideas and they come with me they come to me with those kinds of inquiries about what what we're doing on earth a lot of my students actually are invested in environmental questions at the moment i guess rightly so because they're setting everything on fire Uh, but then i have a lot of students who are taking the they're taking introductory ethics or logic because they have requirements just core requirements and so on the first day of class i always ask him like who doesn't want to be here and they're all like me like i don't want to be here but then you show them throughout the semester that these questions about what it means to be human are their questions and you know on the first day they're like i don't want to be here i'm required to take this but a week later they're all arguing about you know how socrates is shameless or something like that and so the books kind of catch them by surprise um if you can get them to do the reading they become invested in it if you can get them just engaged in conversations and show them that the kinds of questions that we ask in philosophy are very much their questions and also pull the questions out of them. Um, it, it can be really valuable. So I often, you know, start the semester with people who are not interested at all until they realize what philosophy is. And then they leave very interested and engaged in questions. So how frequently does running now come up in the classroom? Are you still in a mode where you don't really bring that up or? Uh, they have, my students have no idea that I run. Uh, <laughs> in when I was at Baylor, it, I couldn't go, uh, I couldn't have a hidden identity because I was on the, like the big photo of me was on like the billboard in front of a, <laughs> in front of the running store. And I had been in the school newspaper enough that it was not a secret, but now at Moorhead State, my students just think I'm just a big nerd. Just, just a toothpaste <laughs> so, connoisseur? Yeah. Every now and then I'll use one too many athletic metaphors and I'm like, oh, I'm going to give myself away. <laughs> but no, I because I think that the role of teacher, to be a hospitable teacher, you have to be like, walk into a room and say, there you are, not here I am. And I never want the classroom to be about me. Like I don't, I want it to be about their questions and their interests. So yeah, I would not offer that information. I'm not sure how I feel about this strategy. Here's, here's <laughs> counterpoints. Hear me out. Maybe I'm wrong. I think it would be interesting if I'm a student coming in to a philosophy class and maybe I'm one of those people, right? When you're like, who wants to be here? And, and it's like, not me. But then I find out that my philosophy professor is like this badass long distance runner. I'm not saying this is a hook for everyone, 
But what if that would be a hook to be like, whoa, Sabrina's doing all this cool stuff out there in the world and she thinks this discipline is really important. You know what I'm saying? Maybe that gives just a little bit of traction to be like, maybe I should check this out. Because let's face it, there's a lot of nerdy ass philosophy professors out there in the world. And frankly, some really not good ones in my experience. So if if you're, what if the, like, I don't know how you do it, introduce the, and I run, um, or maybe you just give them all a copy of this, you know, conversation now when they come in and they'll be like, oh, she's pretty cool. Um, but what do you think of this argument? What if this is a helpful way? Because I do think, and I bet you'd have to agree with me, if philosophy folks can be viewed as these nerds off in the corner, worried about this whatever weird stuff where all the normal people are having their own conversations, shouldn't we be trying to break down that, um, what, stereotype? Yeah. I, well, I think you're right about, I don't know, uh, not not just being a nerd. Um, <laughs> but I do the work of drawing people in. Like I, my husband and I have a reading group where we invite kids over lunch. Still you know, nerd. And that's, Still nerd. Keep going though. All right, so let's see if I get there with you. And when I first came here, I would run with uh, members of the cross country team, which mm. was you know yeah. pre-pandemic. And that was really great. And it was a great way to just be present on campus. Um, but again, I don't know, it, it would just feel awkward to say like, oh, and by the way, mm -hmm. ran 20 miles this morning, yeah. you know. Hmm. Okay. Okay. But it fair. Totally agree with you. But thinking like, you know, if it came up somewhere like, you know, I, I'm also passionate about running and da 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 and and here's why uh this is relevant at whatever moment in time in the classroom it comes up. I just let's I think seed planting. I'm just curious. Maybe yeah, this yeah, works. Yeah. But it, it is something that when I was in the academy, I was just like, man, some of these very, very brilliant people just don't connect. They just don't connect with these students. And I think that's a real shame because the whole point should be connecting with, I mean, it's like, I would love every, anyone listening to this who's like, I don't know, these weirdos, like maybe I should check out, uh, maybe I'll start with Walker Percy, see what that does for me or something. But, um, Man, when you've got young people before they've set a course for their life direction, I'm in the school of like, let's grab them by the throat and and just get people thinking about like what's worth valuing or what isn't. And so I don't know. I I, mm -hmm. I think, yes, I completely agree. And my tactic is not to bore them with one dimensionality. I mean, they often write on my uh, you know, evaluations, like very joyful, makes cool. us love this cool. stuff, you know, stuff like that. So I, I think I just, yeah, You're I, there. it just would feel weird to talk about running in that way because it's my other world, mm -hmm. but I'm meeting them where they are and they're going to leave loving it. <laughs> okay. All right. I, I believe you. I, I yeah, I, I've, I've made my piece and I'm, I think you've got this. <laughs> Let's talk about 2022 on the running side of things for you. What are you up to, curious about, thinking about, committed to when it comes to running training and maybe race plans? Yeah. So this is a really exciting time 
I think for ultra runners, because of the whole World Series thing going on, there are so many different events. And my sponsor is Hoka, and Hoka plays a very big role in it. Um, so we recently had a team meeting, and, and they're really excited to just get us into races and help us to travel. So first big race on my docket is Canyons 100K. Uh, that's in April. Um, so that's my focus for now. Um, and then I'll reevaluate um, as the year goes on. I was actually supposed to race this upcoming weekend. There's a stair race. I do stair races, which are like you run as fast as you can up the stairs. And I just love it. It's childlike. It's amazing. Uh, but it, the race I was going to do was canceled because of COVID, unfortunately. So I need to find a couple of tune-up races to get me ready for the big day in April. Okay. Um you live in Kentucky, yeah? Currently, yes. Yep. What's it like? What's the running like around Kentucky? Or at least your corner of Kentucky? Yeah. So I'm more on the eastern side, about an hour outside of Lexington, and it is exceedingly rural. So it's the northern terminus of the Sheltoe Trace Trail, and it's right in the middle of the Daniel Boone National Forest. So it's a great place to be a trail runner. Um, I would say the infrastructure for running is not here. I mean, people look out the window at you like, what are you doing? If they see you running, it's kind of a countercultural act. And you can't find good physical therapists or running buddies or, or things like that. But I've loved just the raw, natural beauty of the area. And I'm getting a lot of climbing in. And yeah, so that's pretty great. Okay, I can tell by the look on your face, this is a difficult question. It's always a difficult question. Let me try this. Is there a book or film or album or song that's come across your path recently that just kind of knocked your socks off, to use a very old expression? Yes. So I just watched Harry Potter for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> the entire set of movies you've watched had, all of them <laughs> i watched all of them over a two two week period and they were exceedingly good and i cannot believe i missed them all of these years that's my answer that's amazing maybe for two reasons one i've never seen any of the harry potter films <laughs> nor have i read any of the books and i am about to bring this around full circle maybe I think you you might enjoy this. No one else will, but I'm going to do this anyway. I had a professor as an undergrad who I believe is actually teaching at Baylor now. And you may know of him, maybe cross paths with him. He was an English professor of mine way back in the day. And he was adamant about how great the Harry Potter books were. <laughs> adamant. Who is that? Alan Jacobs. Oh, AJJ. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I followed his blog for years and I've seen him lecture. Yeah, his uh, office was right down the hall from philosophy. See, I, I was right. I was right. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so I never took him up on it. I always kind of thought less of him for, I was a real stuck up <laughs> undergrad, I think. But uh, so anyway, but this, so this is interesting. So you went through, I've thought about doing this at some point, like just go knock them all out, see what I think. I have no idea. But turns out you're pretty into it. 
yeah, it's it was really good. Everyone was right. And now it's making me think that I should probably watch Lord of the Rings. Never done that. And I am a little surprised, like as a, you know, self-described reader, you never read the Harry Potter books and you never, did you ever read the Lord of the Rings books? I read the first Lord of the Rings. Uh, I, uh, and I never, no, I never read Harry Potter. Very sad. And I read all the time, just I didn't read those. What were you reading? Oh no. <laughs> like Aristotle's <laughs> metaphysics. Good question. Huh. Okay. You don't know what you were reading, but you swear to us you were reading. Okay. Yeah. Um all right, I'm going to cheat one more question. What do you envision for your own trajectory over the next say decade, right? Philosopher, runner, are you going to I'm voting for don't keep these tracks separate. I'm I'm for the intermingling of these things, obviously. But for you, I mean, thoughts on this? Yeah, so I guess a couple of things. One is I think at some point through the next decade, I need to start running, I guess, in a more sustainable way. And I mean, I feel like my training is sustainable now, but I just want to be doing it for a long period of time. Like I have a daughter now and I would really like the opportunity to, coach her if she ever wanted to be you know in a middle school team or something uh so i i need to save my legs for that and in terms of running in philosophy i'm well, i'm working on a book project at the moment and i hope to just continue to do similar types of work and engagement in character and distance running in the future character and distance running that's what we're doing with this with this book yes uh-huh excellent do we have no pressure but I mean, how deep into this project are you or is like, are you willing, we would never hold you to this, but do you have thoughts about when this might be wrapped up and potentially getting out into the world? Yeah. I mean, hopefully in the next year, a year or so, um, the uh, editor at University of Chicago Press I'm working with has been great and I'm two chapters deep. Uh, so hopefully I'll be talking about it, I guess, more in more specifics soon. That's excellent. So a U of C press. Yes. Look at you. Huh. Somebody's old stomping grounds. Yeah. Shout out to the U of C press. Um, yeah, that's a that's very cool. All right. Well, when that book is coming out into the world, let's, if we haven't already circled back, let's absolutely circle back for a conversation when that's, when that's uh, coming out. That'd be great. Yeah, sounds great. Excellent. Hey, Sabrina, thank you. This was really, really cool to connect. And uh, I never thought I would have such an interesting conversation with someone who has zero books on their bookshelf. <laughs> so you've really, this went a lot better than I thought it was going to, you know, initially. Take care. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much for having me. Well, that's it for this edition of Off the Couch. I want to say thanks to Sabrina for the conversation. Thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And from all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, Colorado, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again later this week over on our Bikes and Big Ideas podcast. Then this Friday on our Gear 30 podcast, Monday. That's our blister podcast. And then we'll catch you back here on Off the Couch next Tuesday. We've got a whole lot of interesting guests and good conversations going on. So check all of those different platforms out. 
and we'll talk to you real soon.